So, not that I'm concerned about time, but actually the first case I had was very similar to his case. Um, I hadn't seen that one. So we are going to make up some time, which is awesome. We'll go to, right to case four. It was literally almost identical. It was a little easier, but almost identical. Um, so uh, we're doing lunch after this, is that right? I forgot now, or before. After this, okay, so do keep going. Okay, lunch is after this case. So this, we'll do a case, this is a 19-year-old woman who was recently admitted for a skin and soft tissue infection. Um, she was noted by an astute medical resident, not unlike the one we have here today, to um, have, she, they noticed she had some track marks and she confided she's recently started injecting heroin after it became too expensive to acquire Oxy. Um, she has a one partner who injects her. Her family is unaware of her drug addiction. Um, she leaves the ER with antibiotics and she declines substance abuse treatment referral, but she takes information about a harm reduction center. So um, you can see access to harm reduction centers or syringe services programs vary by state. I just heard Cody inform me that it's no longer illegal to uh, run a syringe services program in Tennessee. So I hope you will have better access to them because of that. Are there any in this area? Uh huh. Okay, so spread the word. A million dollars up for, uh, for, it sounds like a good cause as well. So, um, so she chose not to access that type of uh, intervention and again gets another skin and soft tissue infection, gets seen in urgent care. Also now reports some malaise. Her provider asks her about sharing needles and she reports she's not. Um, she's injecting in a group setting and she had learned it was safest to be the first one to use a syringe, but did not think to mention that she shared other things. So she was sharing um, some things, but just not needles. So I think how you ask the question sometimes affects how you get the answer. Her labs reveal an HIV fourth generation test that's negative, Hep B service antibody positive, Hep C antibody positive, or AST is 250, ALT is 320, and her is 1.2. The Doctor calls her and urges her to see a primary doctor for further HCV RNA and testing. She feels fine and she decides she'll take care of it the next time she sees a doctor. She also knows someone who tried to get treated but insurance didn't cover it. This news does prompt her to go with a friend to the harm reduction program um, where she's given a harm reduction kit. Uh, so one thing I, I didn't bring up, I'm sorry, I just want to see my question. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. So maybe take a picture of this slide. <laughs> but, uh, you know, telling people, yeah, that not only, you know, I think we worry a lot appropriately about shared syringes, but if you share things used for mixing, um, you know, there's also uh, a way to transmit hep C, right? If you use a needle, then dip it back into something that a needle's been dipped into, 
you will contaminate. So there are things like bleach to use syringes when a clean one, you know, to clean things when it's not available, um, sterile water, um, even the, um, you know, having your own cotton balls and, and clean things so that you're not sharing those. Um, and here, uh, I think in New York, the syringes don't come with a kit, but you access those through the pharmacies or syringe exchange programs. Do pharmacies here? No? Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, it is, I mean, in, in, when you're talking about treating active drug users, I think it's really hard to, to what you were talking about, sort of ethically or feeling responsible to treat them without providing some harm reduction, right? You, I think those two need to go hand in hand. So I think, you know, it sounds like it's a time in Tennessee where the harm reduction can now be scaled up as well. And I think that is certainly worthwhile. And if you as hep C treatment providers can be on the front of pushing that, I think, you know, those two need to go hand in hand. We've already looked at this and the data. So I'm going to skip a few of those slides. Um, and you know too well about restrictions, but a lot of them um, specifically exclude PWIDs. And then so I think um, one thing I wanted to mention on that case where I think the system in terms of the cascade went wrong was when the person, uh, when the antibody test was sent, if they had done a reflex RNA with it, you would have known right then whether she had something to worry about or not. Now, I think her liver enzymes suggest she probably had acute hep C, so in that case. But frequently, we do antibody testing, and if we don't have RNA testing, you know, it requires an extra step, an extra visit, and the care cascade will show you that's when you uh, lose people. So we do reflex RNA testing. Do your labs have that? So that means when you send the antibody test, if it's positive, the lab will automatically check the RNA. I'm seeing some nodding, yeah. So that's, you request it like that, okay. Okay, so knowing how, you know, seeing how your results come back and knowing whether you're gonna get it, I think it's a good question to ask. We've, um, that was one thing the New York City Department of Health went after very aggressively was to get all the labs to do reflex testing, and they did it sort of at a lab or institution level, and I think you make a big impact in the cascade by doing that. And then where for linkage, they can really go after the people who are RNA positive. They can, you know, direct their linkage efforts in the most sort of uh, effective or cost-effective way. So, um, talking about PWID, so, all PWIDs should be denied hep C treatment because, which are the following? No treatment data with DAAs, reinfection rates are too high, they have low fibrosis levels, so do not benefit them, or none of the above. I think you can guess this is sort of a rhetorical question. <laughs> okay, good. So first let's talk about what do we mean. Um, so it's kind of a subjective term that it often is applied, as, as David just said, to any person who's ever injected drugs. So you can kind of be lumped into that category, whether it was once, regularly, occasionally, remotely. But I think when we're talking about reinfection risk, particularly, it matters what group you're in. And then, you know, people may be active or recent, usually, and when studies talk about that, usually they mean within a past year, often within six months, sometimes within a month. Um, and then, you know, whether it's uh, former, meaning they cease to use, or, and then there's also considerations of whether they're uh, accessing um, either syringe services programs or harm reduction or, um, or whether they're on medically assisted therapy. So I'll show you some data from treating uh, patients, people who use drugs, and this, and I'll kind of lump it by which category. So this one was for people receiving opiate agonist therapy. 
Um, and they were treatment naive and they had to have been on the therapy for at least three months and been pretty adherent to their appointments. They all got Elvisvir Grisepravir, so of course they had to be genotype one or four, and I think there were a couple six. And you can see they did very well with the treatment, um, cure rates similar to what we've seen in clinical trials. And this was some of the first data suggesting that you know people who were in opiate agonist therapy programs could successfully be treated with high rates of curing. And they looked at um, illicit drug use, and there was quite a bit uh, going on in, in these patients. So, uh, so the next step, kind of the next large study, and this was a multi-center study, where they wanted to treat recent people who were actively using or recently using. And they defined that was within six months. And uh, patients were given cefosphere vilpatosphere. And um, this graph shows kind of the level of drug use. So you can see most patients were using some type of drug. Often it was heroin. Um, and um, kind of throughout the treatment course, actually. And again, very high cure rates, 94%. And one thing that was particularly reassuring to me, I guess, uh, they measured adherence. So they used these blister packs that every time you took the medication out, it would record it electronically, and then they monitored that. And so every pink dot, every row is a patient, so kind of going across over time, and every pink dot is a time they missed medication. So I guess you can say there were a lot of missed doses here or, or taken, you know, probably outside of the window. Um, some people extended their treatment if they, you know, had some extra pills. And then, um, I, but it didn't seem when they met, when they compared that to cure rates, it actually, uh, they didn't find any effect of adherence on cure rates. So um, I wouldn't go around advertising this, but it seems to suggest that there's actually, you know, a bit of uh, flexibility to, to this in terms of adherence. And some people even miss seven consecutive days. I think we're often tasked with answering the question because, you know, uh, many people in this uh, study probably had pretty chaotic lives, right? Some people are getting incarcerated. People are losing their meds. I suspect there were some homeless people. Um, and that's, uh, I, as a person who treats, active drug users, you know, these are issues that are going to come up. And so what I used to do was if they missed five days of medications, I would check a viral load and I would decide whether to restart treatment based on that. This gave me a little more reassurance. I would probably still get them in to try to check a viral load if I could, but I think I feel have a little bit more assurance that, you know, they may be cured anyway. So no one knows how many doses you can miss and be cured, but I think it makes sense to try to finish out the treatment and see what happens. Has anybody else encountered that situation? The other situation where I see it a lot is actually when people get hospitalized, it kills me. So I always tell people, bring your medications if you get hospitalized, because there's a decent chance. Actually, I can guarantee the hospital will not have you know, Epclusa or Mavirad or whatever for you to take. So um, I think trying to preempt it, saying if you get incarcerated, you know, take your medicine, but people don't usually plan for that one. <laughs> so, but when someone's hospitalized, usually they pack a little bag before they head to the ER. I say, you know, take, take your medications with you. Okay, so, um, but we have had also people, their phone call is like to us saying I was hospitalized and can you, can you know, help me get my medications. We'll try to have a family member bring it or something, or we'll call the uh, prison. We have someone from prison services here. What happens if someone, has that happened? Someone who gets incarcerated and is on treatment? Oh, I'm sorry, I was 
Yeah, yeah. If someone's incarcerated and is on treatment, mm -hmm. but doesn't have their medications with them, do you know what happens? It all depends on whether they're in jail. Now, yeah. in the prison setting. Right. In the prison setting, you monitor, and it has to be dose by dose in the prison. Mm -hmm. So oh, we, we really don't run into that. Okay, but the jail probably happens more. The yeah. Jail True. Be more Kristen, do you think that now, I mean, for me at least, now that we have better treatments for DAA failures, I'm a little bit more liberal with just keeping, so if someone, when I, when I get the call, I, I just stop taking my meds for a week, or the refill mm -hmm. didn't come in, or you know what I mean, something that was, you know, and now, I mean, at least personally, and I'm, I'm curious what you guys do, I tell them just to keep going, you know, my, my threshold is just to keep going, because if it's a failure, I think with better meds now, I think before we were way more worried about resistance and, right. and all these things, and now we have kind of another option for them. And chances are, like looking at that, I felt the same way looking at that data. Like it gives you some. I mean, there's a couple of people in there that really missed like a lot of doses. And, I know. Uh, presumably, there were there were a lot of them were cured. So um, yeah, you know, if you, you're never going to be really wrong to tell them to just keep going. Um, I think that would be, you know, so so if you're kind of on the fence, I think doing that. I just don't know what the date. Is it a week? Is it a month? Yeah, we generally keep going. I mean, it also depends on where, yeah. where in their course yeah. they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if they're on for a week and then all of a sudden they miss two, you know, sometimes then it's, well, what's going on here? Come in and let's figure this out. But yeah, I think our, I mean, certainly up to two weeks anyway, I'll grab an RNA, but have to tell them to restart and see where they are. If they're pretty far into their therapy and have them keep going. I mean, we've had plenty of patients that are cured with, they never pick up their second refill and they're cured. Yeah. yeah. Cured with four weeks. They're cured with two-week interruptions. Um, yeah, they're very forgiving, actually. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's a great question because I mean, it's sort of the earlier on, I think the less likely you are to have generated resistance. Um, sure. But you know, so it might be okay just to restart. But the later you are, um, you may have been more likely to generate resistance. But yet, you know, we know that um, we're probably over-treating a lot of people, right? A lot of people would have been fine with eight weeks. So some of those people were probably already cured. So I guess I feel better about it later in treatment. But, you know, it's, I think you could come up with scenarios where either one's a problem. But I think the, the take-home message here is, pro you know, if the tr treatment interruption wasn't that long, you probably just want to restart and finish it out and see what happens. Um, if you're like me and like to monitor things a lot, you have them come in for a viral load. <laughs> okay, so um, so there have been some meta-analysis that kind of lumped, or one, that lumped people into these different categories of sort of having access to being on an OST or not, and then um, you know whether it was a clinical trial or an observational study, because there's actually a lot of data on using DAAs now in PWIDs. And you can see all of them show good completion rates. And um, when uh, there are some loss to follow-up, as you can imagine, this population, that, that's a problem. And so I think efforts need to be made to try to track people down or have some contingency plan. But then very high cure rates when people do uh, c complete treatment. So I think it's very reasonable based on the data to offer people treatment. Uh, reinfection we talked about is a, another concern. And uh, here's one that kind of lumped it a little bit differently into kind of high risk or low risk, I meant low, high frequency. And that 
I think, you know, having seen a lot of data, I just went to the uh, INSHU conference, which was about hep C and drug users. Um, reinfection rates tend to be about three to four per 100,000 person years, but if you get a very high risk group of recently infected, treated active drug users who are injecting every day, um, you know, you'll get a bit higher uh, reinfection rates. So that's when you kind of lump everybody together, it averages out about three to four hundred. I think you get higher numbers when, when you uh, take the very high risk groups. And same with MSM. I do believe if you break it out into people who are recently infected, MSM compared to people just, you know, who were ever infected, you'll see different reinfection rates. But reinfection, as I said, will happen, and I wouldn't let it concern you too much. One study that I thought um, was a modeling study that I thought is pretty provocative is what can we do about this? Well, one thing that makes sense when you're using, when you're treating people who inject drugs is to treat people with their injection network. So this is the treat a friend strategy. So if you can start people together who actually use drugs together, you may be able to prevent that reinfection. Um, most of the drug users we've included in our studies don't inject with like 100 people. They inject with two or three of the same people over and over again. So if you can treat people as a pair, you know, at least based on modeling data, it shows that you can reduce reinfection rates and that will overall lead to a lower prevalence of hep C in people who drug drugs. The last thing is, um, what about compatibility with the medic with medications you may use? So you can use it with um, um, the medic opioids and the medication-assisted therapy. So there are some potential drug interactions, but it, in general, it's to monitor for um, for grazeprevir. I'm sorry for um, GP. Here's the interactions: is that let me remember this. The glucoprevir. No, the oxycodone levels may be increased, okay, a little bit based when you're using GP. So I think, you know, warning people of that uh, is something that you could certainly do. But it's um, not a reason not to use it. The interaction is not so strong that, you know, it will clearly be fatal or something if someone uses it, but I think people should just be advised. Um, how to treat people I think is important, and so there's different models. So. This is something I think is really important just in general for hep C, and it sounds like you all have been doing a great job at this, is kind of bringing hep C, out, the decentralization, bringing it out of the specialist's office whenever possible, treating in environments that can provide multidisciplinary services around addiction, I think is key for this group. Um, there's different models being evaluated, I think treating in methadone clinics, treating in prisons, treating in integrated primary care facilities, we're treating in the syringe um, services program. So all kinds of different options there. Um, I don't know why, well, here it is. I can use this, I keep stepping back. Lastly, I wanted to end on a really positive note. So this is the Iceland experience. Has anybody ever been to Iceland here? Uh, yay, we have one. Okay, I've never been there. But um, I've heard these, uh, this group speak a couple times now, and so their goal was for hep C elimination by 2020, okay? And they took a different approach than what the U.S. approach was, which was to restrict treatment in all these groups. They wanted to actually emphasize treating the groups that were most likely to either get ill or spread infection. So they actually made their priority to treat not only cirrhotics, but to treat people who were injecting drugs, to treat prisoners. And they thought that by treating those groups, they could shut down the epidemic as quickly as possible. So Iceland's a little bit different than the U.S. in that uh, they have a, their hep C epidemic is 
of much smaller scale. So they estimate somewhere, I think it was around 1,000 persons needed to be treated uh, in all of Iceland. And um, so they, they did this. They started treatment. In between 2016 and 18, they treated about 680 people. That they estimated was 80% of their overall infected population. They had a 90% cure rate. So you can see the hep C. Um, oh, and then um, I didn't show you all the data, but their hep C prevalence obviously went down. And then what they did to try to monitor the idea of treatment as prevention is they, they monitored what the testing at this um, Voger Addiction Hospital, which is their main addiction hospital. Evidently, 7% of the adult population comes into contact with this hospital, 7% of Iceland. So it's a very, you know, um, it's like their main addiction treatment center in Iceland. And they just monitored testing there. They had testing data because they've always done hep C antibody for years, and they monitored what happened. And they saw that once they started treating people, the antibody positive rate, and these were for new admissions. So these weren't people who, you know, the same person getting readmitted over and over. This was new admissions hospital, went down dramatically, which kind of just suggests their background rate of hep C has gone down dramatically. And then they also looked at incidents and found that there was a reduction between 2015 and 17. So I think that's just kind of evidence. Treatment as prevention can work. If you do treat most of the hep C, you will see reductions in your uh, new cases. So, um, and that was the first time. That had been shown in MSM and some other countries went by, treat, by large efforts to treat co-infected patients, but it hadn't been shown in PWIDs. So I think that's what's important data. A great question that I didn't hear addressed. Yeah, I don't know. I would. I don't know actually. I would get just guess by the people who I've seen speak. I think they probably do. Um, just the attitude and yeah. Uh huh. Did he? Okay. That they have them at least, yeah. So, um, just to summarize, any kind of, I wanted to see if there was any comments or questions on treating drug users. Any other okay. All right, we'll go on. We'll go on to lunch. Oh my gosh.